0: Folks, before we jump into today's highlights, I just have to ask you, do you want to put 50 years of baseball history in your pocket? I know what you're thinking, it's not going to fit, but it really will because it's all in audio format. These are lost pieces of baseball history told to you from baseball cathedrals. They're, They're told to you by icons of the game from Red Barber, Ernie Howell, to Harry Carey. I get goosebumps personally listening to these games and even thinking about the interviews and what these players are gonna share with me. I know what you're thinking, is this AI? Are there bots? Is there some magic potion here that are making these things appear? And I'm telling you, they're not. These games are real. They were done by real people at that specific moment in time. All the iconic moments, the interviews, none of it's reproduced, none of it's AI. It's all real, but done again by real people. If you want to check them out, uh, there's a free intro offer. Jump on over to VintageBaseballReflections.com. And there's over 2,500 audio clips and games for you to put in your pocket, take on walks with you, hang around the fireplace and listen, put them on the porch, invite some friends over. However you want to listen, you're going to be able to listen in these amazing moments in baseball history. Use this coupon this day for a special gift at the checkout. Hi folks, thanks for joining me today on season three, episode four of The Daily Rewind. Today we're covering August 15th through the 25th. We're gonna be talking about Jimmy Fox and his pitching career, Dwight Gooden and his early excellence, Bill Veck and his grandstand moment, Yogi Berra and the harmonica, Juan Marichal and his historic fight, and the professional pinch hitter, Matt Stairs. My name's Tom Hannon. I'm the host of the show. This podcast is part of thisdayinbaseball.com, and if you love baseball history, no matter who you search for, whether it's a team, whether it's a player, a date, an event, you're going to find a great amount of nuggets of information about all the events in baseball history. There's over 50,000 pages on thisdayinbaseball.com for you to search, including all of today's great events. Now to start the show off, here's a little trivia for you. What owner once bought a jackass as a team mascot and named it after himself? And as a hint, his nickname was also the Wizard of Art. On August 19, 1945, in Game 2 of a doubleheader against the Cincinnati Reds, 37-year-old slugger Jimmy Fox makes his first Major League start, pitching the first seven innings for the Philadelphia Phillies at Shard Park. He leaves with a 4-1 lead. And Andy Carl saves Fox's only decision in his career, a 6-2 final. Now Fox had one appearance earlier in his career, and he would have 9 total appearances in 1945. In his 10 total appearances in his career, he had an ERA of 152, an ERA plus of 243. And Battis hit only 171 with a 479 OPS against him. And of the 91 batters Fox faced, not one of them was able to get an extra base hit. The only black mark was 14 base on balls versus his 10 strikeouts. Fox, also known as the Beast, had always wanted to pitch during his career. He was a star hurler in high school. However, it was World War II and the end of his career that really gave him a chance. In 1944, he had appeared in only 15 games, mostly used as a pinch hitter. But the war gave him another chance. And the Philadelphia Phillies reached out and they wanted to sign Fox for another go round The three-time MVP was not faring any better though in 1945, so the last place Phillies gave him a shot on the mound. And Fox, the future Hall of Famer that he was, made the most of it to finish his spectacular career. On August 20th, 1964, during a bus ride after the Chicago White Sox swept the Yankees in four straight Mickey Mantle misinformed his teammate, Phil Linz, who had been playing Mary Had a Little Lamb on his harmonica, that their manager, Yogi Berra, had asked for the harmonica to be played louder, when in fact he asked him to stop. A confrontation occurs on the back of the team bus between the skipper and the utility player. As told by Mel Stottlemyre, a rookie at the time, Yogi told Phil he was going to shove the harmonica up his ass if he kept playing, plus a few other things. I don't know if it scared Phil, but he tossed the harmonica toward Yogi, who slapped it out of the air and whacked it off Joe Pepitone's knee. With the bus full of reporters, the event was well publicized. Linz apologized the next day and he was fined $200. Some say that seeing that side of Berra fired up the third place team to a successful pennant run, but may have reinforced the perception Berra had lost control of the team. With so many dissensions on the club, leading to his dismissal after Game Seven of the World Series, Yogi had many Yogiisms. Here's one that I think about a lot: If you don't know where you're going, you'll wind up somewhere else. Think about that. On August 21st, 2010, Matt Steers sets the career record for pinch-hit home runs when he goes deep off Ernesto Ferri in the eighth inning of a 6-5 loss in Milwaukee. If I didn't pronounce that right, I apologize. The two run shot over the Miller Park right field fence was his 21st pinch hit round tripper, which moved him ahead of the premier pinch hitter Cliff Heathcliff Johnson. Now here's some stats about Matt Stairs. He is one of only five Canadian bond players to hit 200 home runs, and he has the record for a position player playing for 12 different teams in 13 franchises. And I say 13 franchises because he played for the Expos and the Nationals. His pinch hit home run in the 8th inning of Game 4 in the 2008 NLCS off L.A. Dodger reliever Jonathan Broxton was called one of the most memorable home runs in Philly's history. And then, on August 12, 2009, Steers' game-winning home run against the Colorado Rockies was the last home run called by legendary broadcaster Harry Callis who passed away less than 24 hours later. Now Stairs is a great what if. He didn't get regular at bats until he was 29 years old. And he only had over 500 at bats twice in his career. If he had been in the right situation at age 22-23, Bill James speculates he could have had a Hall of Fame career. If nothing else, Bill James said he would have hit a lot of bombs. On August 22, 1965, after Juan Marichal had knocked down Mari Wills and Ron Fairley in the top of the third, John Roseboro signaled for Sandy Koufax to retaliate in the bottom of the inning. It didn't work. Koufax was constitutionally incapable of throwing at anyone's head, Roseborough wrote in his 1978 autobiography, so I decided to take matters into my own hands. Roseboro was throwing the ball too close to Marichal's head while returning throws to Koufax. Marshall complained to the umpire about the throws, and then the two suddenly square off, and that's when Marshall hits Roseboro over the head with the bat. Now, of course, Marshall was suspended for eight games, fined $1,750. Roseboro f- actually filed a lawsuit asking for $110,000 in damages, but settled for about si- $7,000. He reportedly needed 14 stitches to close the wound on his head. It was truly one of the ugliest events in baseball history. For many, the story ends there. But in a San Francisco Chronicle article, Barbara Roseborough, his widow, said, In restaurants, over the phone, with clients, at the hospital where he lay dying, John Roseboro couldn't escape the questions. People would come up to us at dinner and say, Please tell us about the fight with Marischal. The catcher's widow said recently from an office in Beverly Hills. He would always accept his responsibility for that incident. He'd say, I provoked it. I threw the ball too close to Juan's air. It was, however, Roseboro who helped Marichal transition into Dodger Blue in 1975. They made peace later at an old-timers game in the 1970s, and Roseboro's wife's PR firm helped Marichelle cross the line to get into Cooperstown when they felt the legacy of the fight was hurting him after he missed for a second time. Roseboro's widow speaks fondly of Marichelle. After my husband passed away, Juan would call to check up on me and my daughters every six months or so, she said. It's a great story how two people with differences in an ugly incident can come together to make peace. This is a great story how two people with differences in an ugly incident can come together to make peace. And we have a link to this article in our show notes. And I highly recommend you checking it out because it goes into great detail on how these two worked out their differences and how they helped each other throughout their lives. On August 23, 1982, Gaylord Perry of the Seattle Mariners is caught putting a foreign substance on the ball. Long suspected of throwing a spitball, Perry is ejected from a game for the first and only time in his career against the Boston Red Sox. Now this is from Peter Gammons. Against the Red Sox, in the seventh inning, down 1-0 with the bases loaded and two out, and facing Rick Miller, who was his nemesis, he threw a pitch that dropped measurably umpire Dave Phillips, one of the most respected umpires of the era, jumped out from behind home plate and ejected Gaylord Perry. There was some argument from Perry and M's manager Rene Lashman, but it sure seemed obvious to all of us in the building that there was a very mysterious flight pattern to that pitch. But the reason Perry was ejected was a warning he got in the top of the fourth inning, and that was, well, divine intervention. You see, Red Sox outfielder Reed Nichols asked Phillips to check the ball. Phillips did. He found some substance and issued the warning. Nichols said, in the bottom of the third inning, I was standing at my position in left field, and a voice came to me reminding me of the scripture that no weapon formed against thee shall prosper. So when I got up to the plate in the next inning, I asked the umpire to check the ball. In another of Bill Vech's legendary public relations stunts, Fans, Managers, Night. The Browns defeat the A's 5-3. The Browns coaches hold up place cards for 1,115 fans who vote yes or no on options given to them. Manager Zach Taylor sits in the box behind the dugout with two fans who monitor the voting. Adding to the festivities is Max Patkin, the clown prince of baseball, who coaches at first base for several innings. Sherm Lawler voted voted in to start behind the plate instead of Matt Bates has three hits including a home run, and Hank Aft also voted in knocks home too. All the A's runs came on a home run by Gus Zernal. When the stunt was announced on August 15th, the A's GM Art Ehlers bitterly denounced it. So just how did the managers do? In his autobiography, Vec as in wreck, the Browns owner wrote, of the grandstand manager's performance never has a game been called better and though veck was certainly prone to and although Vec was certainly prone to spin a story he had a point the managers correctly decided to leave garver in the game and even voted to play back for a double play with runners on first and third but went out in the first inning while the a second baseman pete Suda obligated by grounding into a double play the grandstand managers only made one glaring mistake in the game. After tying the game with the single in the first, the group instructed Arf to steal second base with two outs. Unfortunately, the A's apparently saw the move coming and Arf was thrown out easily to end the inning. Now how many fans wish they had Vec as the owner? In 2003, during a playoff game, when the A's were playing the Red Sox at Fenway Park, I sat in front of a guy who yelled for Grady Little to put in Trot Nixon for six innings. It was non-stop. He yelled and yelled and yelled every time the Red Sox were up. Well, turns out, Grady Little finally did put Nixon in. He put him in to pinch hit in the bottom of the 11th inning and trot Nixon, hit a two-run homer. So who knows? Maybe the fans do know best sometimes. My dad used to say the saddest words ever spoken are all what could have been stories. On August 25th, 1985, at the age of 20 years, 9 months, 9 days, Dwight Gooden becomes the youngest 20-game winner ever when the Mets beat the San Diego Padres at Shea Stadium 9-3. Doc is 27 days younger than former Indian hurler Bob Feller who accomplished the feat with Cleveland in 1939. He'll win the 1985 NL Cy Young Award in the Pitching Triple Crown. He's going to compile a 24-4 record and lead the league with a 153 ERA and compile 268 strikeouts and 16 complete games. In 1986, he'll lead the Mets to the 1986 World Series victory. Although Gooden remained an effective pitcher in subsequent years, he will only once have an ERA under three and he's never going to win more than 13 games in a season after the age of 26 his career was ultimately derailed by cocaine and alcohol abuse. I hope you enjoyed the Daily Rewind and before we give you the trivia answer, here is a word from our sponsor. What if you could own a part of history? What if you could be part of history? Whether you're nine months old or 90, This Day in Baseball has something for you. This Day in Baseball offers unique clothing items with iconic opportunities to sponsor player pages like Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Sandy Koufax, any game, season, or ballpark in baseball history. You can join our podcast, our special videos, and much more. This Day in Baseball allows you to be a proud sponsor of history of your favorite players, places, teams, and events, which allows us to fulfill the mission to bring baseball history back to life in many various forms. We provide you the chance to be part of history and we recreate it. Want to see how? Go to thisdayinbaseball.com and click on the Patreon link in the menu bar. If you're familiar with Patreon, go to patreon.com slash thisdayinbaseball and you can become part of baseball history today. All right, you ready for that trivia answer? I'm going to give you the question again. What owner once bought a jackass as a team mascot and named it after himself? And his nickname was also the Wizard of Odd. This owner also had a mechanical rabbit to bring baseballs to umpires, and he once tried to get Vita Blue to change his name to True. The owner, of course, is Charlie O. Finley. His three-time world champion Oakland A's, team bonding was against finley himself in his legendary tight-fisted ways i hope you enjoyed the show remember to check out the show notes we link to the players mentioned years and other articles you can find us on social media just look for thisdayinbaseball.com we're on youtube we're on instagram we're on the twitter we're on Facebook. You can find us just about anywhere. And if you have time to give us a review or any feedback, that would be greatly appreciated. You can do the reviews right here on Apple Podcasts, and then you can send me an email directly at tom@thisdayinbaseball.com. At and we will see you at the ballpark, and I'll talk to you next week.